Good evening, and welcome to the Secret Commonwealth. My name is Jessica, and I will be your host for tonight. This podcast is dedicated to the folklore of the British Isles, and I will be reading selections from my collection of books of folklore from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. All of these books are now out of copyright, and are therefore legal to utilise. The bulk of these stories are focused on the fairy lore of Scotland, Ireland, Wales and England, but we will also venture into tales of ghosts, witches, devils and more. There are many entities that form a part of the English fairy legends and lore. In this first episode, we will be exploring stories from many parts of England and will present an overview of old fairy beliefs. Follow me now on a journey of high strangeness and mystery, exploring the illusory and once strongly held faiths of the early English. Lastly, in terms of the title of this podcast, The Secret Commonwealth, it is named after a famous book of folklore entitled The Secret Commonwealth of Elves, Fauns and Fairies by the minister Robert Kirk. The contents of this book were collected between 1691 and 1692, but the book itself was not published until 1815. Some believe that Robert Kirk was taken by the fairies as he died atop a fairy hill, but this we will never know. Now, on to the stories. The first story that we will be reading this evening is from a book called Lancashire Folklore, illustrative of the superstitious beliefs and practices, local customs and usages of the people of the country Palatine, compiled and edited by John Hartland and T.T. Wilkinson in 1867. Elves and Fairies England has ever been full of the favourite haunts of those pleasantest of all the supernatural sprites of childhood and superstition elves and fairies. Volumes might be filled with the stories of their feats and pranks in all parts of England, and our greatest poet has forever embalmed this superstition in the richest hues of poetic imagery and fancy, especially in his Midsummer Night's Dream. The fairies, or hill folk, yet live amongst the rural people of Lancashire. Antique tobacco pipes, formerly belonging to the fairies, are still occasionally found in the corners of newly ploughed fields. They themselves still gamble on the grassy meads at dewy eve, and their revels are yet believed to be witnessed at times by some privileged inhabitants of our calm sequestered vales. It is generally stated that, in order to see one of these diminutive beings, the use of ointments, four-leaf clover, or other specific preparations is necessary. But a near relative of the writer, not more imbued with superstition than the majority, firmly believed that he once saw a real dwarf or fairy without the use of any incantation. He had been amusing himself one summer evening on the top of Mellow Moor, near Blackburn, close to the remains of the Roman encampment, 
when his attention was arrested by the appearance of a dwarf-like man, attired in full hunting costume, with top boots and spurs, a green jacket, red hairy cap, and a thick hunting whip in his hand. He ran briskly along the moor for a considerable distance, when, leaping over a low stone wall, he darted down a steep declivity and was lost to sight. The popular opinion of the neighbourhood is that an underground city exists at this place, that an earthquake followed up, swallowed up the encampment, and that on certain days in the year the hill folk may be heard ringing their bells and indulging in various festivities. Considerable quantities of stone, which still remain around the ditches of this rectangular place, may have suggested the ideas of a city and an earthquake. On other occasions, the fairies are supposed to exhibit themselves in military array on the mountain sides on their evolutions, conforming in every respect to the movement of modern troops. Such appearances are believed to portend the approach of civil commotions and are said to have been more than usually common about the time of the rebellion in 1745 to 1746. This would suggest an explanation of a more rational character. One Lancashire fairy tale runs thus. Two men went poaching, and having placed nets, or rather sacks, over what they supposed to be rabbit holes, but which were in reality fairies' houses, the fairies rushed into the sacks, and the poachers, believing them to be rabbits, content with their prey, marched homewards again. One fairy missing another in the sack called out, the story was told in the broad Lancashire dialect, Dick, dignified name for a fairy, where art thou? To which fairy Dick replied, in a sack, on a back, riding up Barley Brow. The story has a good moral ending, for the men were so frightened that they never poached again. The Reverend William Thornbur characterizes the elves and fairies as kind, good-natured creatures at times seeking the assistance of mortals, and in return liberally rewarding them. They have a favourite spot between Hardhorn and Staining, at a cold spring of water called Fairy's Well to this day. The next story we will be reading is from a book called British Fairy Origins by Lewis Spence, published in 1946. The question of fairy costume is of almost equal importance. British fairies, as a general rule, are addicted to the wearing of the green. There are notable exceptions, however. The plausibly classical elf encountered by King Hurler was garbed in a spotted fawn skin. The fairy ladies seen in Shropshire by Wild Edric were draped in graceful linen garments. Shakespeare, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, alludes to black, grey, green and white fairies, and this may refer to the colour of their garments. Fairies who held a fair near Taunton were garbed in red, blue and green, according to the old way of country garb, with high-crowned hats. The elves of the southwest of England wore green for the most part, with a red or blue cap and a feather. In North Wales, the Tillith Teg, or Fairley family, wore blue petticoats. The elves of Pembrokeshire were garbed in scarlet, with feathered caps. 
Some modern Welsh fays appear to be dressed exclusively in white. Others display striped garments. In the Isle of Man, Lochtin, a woolen fabric occasionally undyed, but sometimes coloured green or blue, is the most regular elfin wear. In Ireland, the ancient Tuatha Dé Danann appear to have been garbed in the elaborate costume of the upper classes, gorgeous in the extreme. Green, however, seems to have entered into the general scheme. Some of the fairies of later Irish folklore, like their Scottish congeners, occasionally wear tartan with plaids and bonnets. They have also been described as wearing bracket clothes and caps, that is, of speckled cloth, Gaelic, Brican, or Dar Tartan. In Antrim, they occasionally dress in green or in tartan, although red is the most usual colour scheme. In Lowland Scotland, the fairies, says Cromick, appears in mantles of green cloth inlaid with wild flowers and reaching to the middle. They sport green pantaloons buttoned with bobs of silk and sandals of silver. Their long fleeces of yellow hair are caught up with golden combs. This is obviously a late and literary description. But an old woman of Nisthale described the fairies to the same authority who made it as we folk. And he speaks of the other fairies of the Galloway area as small, beautiful and cleanly, while others are of the height of little boys. Tom Reed, a fairy man seen by Bessie Dumlop, a Scottish witch, wore the costume of a lowland small farmer. Other fairies encountered by this woman were dressed like gentlemen, while their female companions wore plaids. A fairy queen, with whom a witch, one Isabel Gowdy, had dealings near Nairn, was clad in white linen and brown cloth. The elves mentioned by Hugh Miller were habited in ancient jerkins of plaid, long grey cloaks and red caps. In the ballad of Tam Lin, the hero is dressed in elfin grey. In that of the wee wee man, the fairy ladies are attired in glistening green. The attire of the Highland fairies is more constant. The Reverend Robert Kirk, who lived at Aberfoyle near the Highland line, at the end of the 17th century, tells us their apparel and speech is like that of the people and country under which they live, so were they seen to wear plaids and variegated garments in the highlands of Scotland and Swanocks, coarse mantles in Ireland. J. F. Campbell, in one of his West Highland tales, describes them as dressed in green kilts and green conical caps. Scott tells us that the fairies of the moors were sometimes clad in heath-brown or lichen-tied garments, while Grant Stewart, a careful authority, declares that they were garbed in plain worsted green. J.G. Campbell avers that in Skye, the fairy women dress in green, while the men wear clothes of any colour, like their human neighbours, although these are occasionally dyed with crotal, a reddish-brown dye, extracted from lichen. The women dress in shaggy or ruffled coats and wrinkled caps, while the men have blue bonnets. For our next tale, I will be reading from the book Popular Romances of the West of England, collected by Robert Hunt in 1865. The Spriggans of Trencrom Hill 
It is not many years since a man, who thought he was fully informed as to the spot in which a crock of the giant's gold was buried, proceeded on one fine moonlit night to this enchanted hill, and with spade and pick commenced his search. He proceeded for some time without interruption, and it became evident to him that the treasure was not far off. The sky was rapidly covered with the darkest clouds, shutting out the brilliant light of the moon, which had previously gemmed each can, and leaving the gold seeker in total and unearthly darkness. The wind rose and roared terrifically amongst the rocks, but this was soon drowned amidst the fearful crashes of thunder, which followed in quick succession the flashes of lightning. By its light the man perceived that the spriggans were coming out in swarms from all the rocks. They were in countless numbers, and although they were small at first, they rapidly increased in size, until eventually they assumed an almost giant form, looking all the while, as he afterwards said, as ugly as if they would eat him. How this poor man escaped is unknown, but he is said to have been so frightened that he took to his bed and was not able to work for a long time. The following tale is also from popular romances of the west of England. The fairy revels on the Gump, St. Just. Long has the Gump been the reputed playground of the small people. Many of the good old people were permitted to witness their revels, and for years they have delighted their grandchildren with tales of the songs they have heard, and of the sights they have seen. To many of their friends, those fairies have given small but valuable presents, but woe to the man or woman who would dare to intrude upon the ground occupied by them at the time of their high festivals. There was a covetous old hunks in St. Just, never mind his name. He was severely punished. Let that suffice well. This old fellow had heard so much of the riches displayed by the little people when holding holiday on the gump that he resolved to get some of the treasures. He learned all he could learn from his neighbours, but kept his intention to himself. It was during the harvest moon the night was a softened day, and everything abroad on such a night should have been in harmony with its quiet brilliancy. But he was a dark soul passing along, making a small eclipse with his black shadow. The old man stole towards the rendezvous of the good people, as some were fond of calling them, anxiously looking out for the treasures which he coveted. At length, when he had not advanced far on the gump, he heard music of the most ravishing kind. Its influence was of a singularly mysterious character. As the notes were solemn and slow, or quick and gay, the old man was moved from tears to laughter, and on more than one occasion he was compelled to dance in obedience to the time. Notwithstanding that he was almost bewildered by the whirling motion to which he was compelled, the old man kept his wits awake and waited his opportunity to seize some fairy treasure. But as yet nothing remarkable had presented itself. The music appeared to surround him and, as he thought, to come closer to him than it was at first, and although its sound led him to believe that the musicians were on the surface, he was impressed with an idea that they were really beneath the earth. Eventually, 
there was a crash of sound, startling beyond description, and the hill before him opened. All was now ablaze with various coloured lights. Every braid of blade of glass was hung with lamps, and every furze bush was illuminated with stars. Out from the opening in the hill marched a host of spriggans, as if to clear the road. Then came an immense number of musicians, playing on every kind of instrument. These were followed by troop after troop of soldiers, each troop bearing aloft their banner, which appeared to spread itself to display its blazonry without the assistance of any breeze. All these arranged themselves in order over the ground, some here and some there. One thing was not at all to our friend's liking. Several hundreds of the most grotesque of the Spriggans placed themselves so as to enclose the spot on which he was standing. Yet, as they were none of them higher than his shoe-tie, he thought he could squash them easily with his foot if they were up to any mischief, and so he consoled himself. This vast array having disposed of themselves, first came a crowd of servants bearing vessels of silver and vessels of gold, goblets cut out of diamonds, rubies, and other precious stones. There were others laden, almost to overflowing, with the richest meats, pastry, preserves, and fruits. Presently the ground was covered with tables, and everything was arranged in the most systematic order, each party falling back as they disposed of their burdens. The brilliancy of the scene nearly overpowered the old man, but when he was least prepared for it, the illumination became a thousand times more intense. Out of the hill were crowding thousands upon thousands of lovely ladies and gentlemen, arrayed in the most costly attire. He thought there would be no end to the coming crowd. By and by, however, the music suddenly changed, and the harmonious sounds which fell upon his ears appeared to give new life to every sense. His eyes were clearer, his ears quicker, and his sense of smell more exquisite. The odours of flowers, more delicious than he had ever smelt, filled the air. He saw, without any disturbing medium, the brilliant beauty of the thousands of ladies who were now upon the gump, and their voices were united in one gush of song, which was clear as silver bells in a hymnal sympathy of the most utmost delicacy. The words were in a language unknown to him, but he saw they were directed towards a new group now emerging from the hill. First came a great number of female children, clothed in the whitest gauze, strewing flowers on the gump. These were not dead or cut flowers, for the moment they touched the ground, they took root and grew. These were followed by an equally large number of boys, holding in their hands shells which appeared to be strung like harps, and from which they brought forth murmurs of melody, such as angels could only hope to hear and live. Then came, and there were no end to their coming, line upon line of little men, clothed in green and gold, and by and by a forest of banners, which, at the signal, were all furled. Then, seated on thrones, carried upon a platform above the heads of the men, came a young prince and princess who blazed with beauty and jewels, as if there were suns amidst a sky host of stars. There was much ceremonial marching to and fro, 
but eventually the platform was placed on a mound on the gump, which was now transformed into a hillock of roses and lilies, and around this all the ladies and gentlemen walked, bowing, and each one saying something to the princess and the prince, passing onwards and taking their seats at the tables. Although no man could count the number of this fairy host, there was no confusion. All the ladies and gentlemen found, as if by instinct, their places. When all were seated, a signal was given by the prince. Servants in splendid liveries placed tables crowded with gold plate and good things on the platform, and everyone, the prince and princess included, began to feast with a will. Well, thought the old man, now is my time. If I could only crawl up to the prince's table, I should have a catch sure enough and become a rich man for life. With his greedy mind fixed on this one object and unobservant of anything else, he crouched down as though by doing so he could escape observation and very slowly and stealthily advanced among the revelers. He never saw that thousands of spriggans had thrown little strings about him and that they still held the ends of the threads. The presence of this selfish old mortal did not in any way discompose the assembly. They ate and drank, and were as merry as though no human eye were looking on them. The old man was wondrous cautious, lest he should disturb the feasters. Consequently, a long time was spent in getting, as he desired, to the back of the mound. At length he reached the desired spot, and, to his surprise, all was dark and gloomy behind him but in front of the mound all was a blaze of light. Crawling like a serpent on his belly, trembling with anxiety, the old man advanced close to the prince and princess. He was somewhat startled to find, as he looked out over the mound, that every one of the thousands of eyes in that multitude was fixed on his. He gazed a while, all the time screwing his courage up. Then, as a boy who would catch a butterfly, he took off his cat and carefully raised it so as to cover the prince, the princess and their costly table and when about to close upon them, a shrill whistle was heard. The old man's hand was fixed powerless in the air and everything became dark around him. Whirr, 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 as if a flight of bees were passing him, buzzed in his ears. Every limb, from head to foot, was if, as if stuck full of pins and pinched with tweezers. He could not move, he was chained to the ground. By some means he had rolled down the mound and lay on his back with his arms outstretched, arms and legs being secured by magic chains to the earth. Therefore, although he suffered great agony, he could not stir, and, strange enough, his tongue appeared tied by cords so that he could not call. He had lain, no one can tell how long in this sad plight, when he felt as if a number of insects were running over him, and by the light of the moon he saw standing on his nose one of the spriggans, who looked exceedingly like a small dragonfly. This little monster stamped and jumped with great delight, and having had his own fun upon the elevated piece of humanity, he laughed most outrageously and shouted, Away! Away! I smell the day! Upon this the army of small people, who had taken possession of the old man's body, moved quickly away and left our discomfited hero alone on the gump. Bewildered, or, as he said, 
bedeviled, he lay still to gather up his thoughts. At length the sun arose, and then he found that he had been tied to the ground by myriads of gossamer webs, which were now covered with dew, and glistened like diamonds in the sunshine. He shook himself, and was free. He rose wet, cold, and ashamed. Sulkily, he made his way to his home. It was a long time before his friends could learn from the old man where he had passed the night, but by slow degrees they gathered the story I have related to you. The next story we will be reading tonight is called The Scriker or The Shrieker from Goblin Tales of Lancashire by James Boker. On a fine night, about the middle of December, many years ago, a sturdy-looking young fellow left chipping for his cottage, three or four miles away, upon the banks of the Hodder. The ground was covered with snow, which in many places had drifted into heaps, and the keen frost had made the road so slippery that the progress he made was but slow. Nature looked very beautiful, and the heart of the rustic was even touched by the sweet peacefulness of the scene. The noble old parlick and the sweeping long ridge, with its fur-crowned thornly height and kemple end, stood out boldly against the clear sky, and the moon shed her soft silvery light into the long silent valley, stretching away until its virgin paleness mingled with the shadows and the darkness of the distant fells beyond Whitewell. All was still, save when the sighing wind rustled gently through the frosted branches of the leafless trees by the roadside, and shook down upon the wayfarer a miniature shower of snow, for even the tiny stream, so full of mirth and music in the summertime, had been lulled to sleep by the genius of winter, and the cottages, whose little houses, half hidden by the rhyme, seemed hardly large enough for the dwellings of dwarfs, had been snugly sleeping for hours. Adam was by no means a timid or nervous being, but there was a nameless something in the deathly silence which oppressed, if it did not actually frighten him. And although he sang aloud a verse of the last song he had heard before he left the kitchen of the Patton Arms, his voice had lost its heartiness. He earnestly wished himself safely across the little bridge over the brook, but he was yet some distance from the stream when the faint chimes of midnight fell upon the air. Almost immediately after the last stroke of twelve had broken the silence, a cloud passed over the face of the moon, and comparative darkness enveloped the scene. The wind, which before had been gentle and almost noiseless, began to howl amidst the boughs and branches of the waving trees, and the frozen snow from the hedgerows was dashed against the wayfarer's face. He had already begun to fancy that he could distinguish in the soughing of the wind and the creaking of the boughs unearthly cries and fiendish shouts of glee. But as he approached the dreaded stream, his courage almost entirely failed him, and it required a great effort to keep from turning his back to it and running away in the distant village at the foot of the parlick. It struck him, however, that he had come a long distance, that if he did go back to the Patton Arms, the company would be dispersed and the inmates asleep, and, what was more effective than all, 
If he could only cross the bridge, he would be safe. The Greenies, Boggarts, and Farron not having power over anyone who had passed over the water. Influenced by this thought, yet with his knees trembling under him, he pushed forward with assumed boldness, and he had almost reached the bridge when he heard the noise of passing feet in the crunching snow, and became conscious of the presence of a ghastly thing he was unable to see. Suddenly, a sepulchral howl brought him to a stop, and, with his heart throbbing loudly enough to be heard, he stood gazing fixedly into the darkness. There was nothing to be perceived, however, save the copings of the bridge, with their coverings of rhyme, and he might have stood there until daylight had not another cry, louder and even more unearthly and horrible than the preceding one, called him from his trance. No sooner had this second scream died away then, impelled by an irresistible impulse, he stepped forward in the direction whence the noise had come. At this moment the moon burst forth from behind the clouds, which had for some time obscured her light, and her rays fell upon the road, with its half-hidden calf tracks winding away into the dim distance, and in the very centre of the bridge he beheld a hideous figure with a black shaggy hide, and huge eyes closely resembling orbs of fire. Adam at once knew from the likeness the dread object bore to the figure he heard described by those who had seen the Shrieker, that the terrible thing before him was an ambassador of death. Without any consciousness of what he was doing, and acting as though the sway of a strange and irresistible mesmeric influence, he stepped towards the bridge. But no sooner did he stir than the frightful thing in front of him, with a motion that was not walking, but rather a sort of heavy gliding, moved also, slowly retreating, paused when he paused, and always keeping his fiery eyes fixed upon his blanched face. Slowly he crossed the stream, but gradually his steps grew more and more rapid until he broke into a run. Suddenly, a faint knowledge of the horrible nature of his position dawned upon him. A little cottage stood by the roadside, and from one of its chamber windows, so near to the ground as to be within its reach, a dim light shone, the room probably being occupied by a sick person or by watchers of the dead. Influenced by a sudden feeling of companionship, Adam tried to cry out, but his tongue clave to his parched mouth, and ere he could mumble a few inarticulate sounds, scarcely audible to himself, the dwelling was left far behind him, and a sensation of utter loneliness and helplessness again took possession of him. He had thus traversed more than a mile of the road, in some parts of which, shaded by the high hedgerows and overhanging boughs, the only light seemed to him to be that from the terrible eyes, when suddenly he stumbled over a stone and fell. In a second, impressed by a fear that the ghastly object would seize him, he regained his feet, and, to his intense relief, the shrieker was no longer visible. With a sigh of pleasure he sat down upon a heap of broken stones, for his limbs, no longer forced into mechanical movement by the influence of the spectre's presence, refused to bear him further. 
bitterly cold as was the night, the perspiration stood in beads upon his whitened face, and, with the recollection of the shrieker's terrible eyes and horrible body strong upon him, he shook and shivered as though in a fit of the ague. A strong and burly man, in the very prime of life, he felt as weak as a girl, and, fearing that he was about to sink to the ground in a swoon, he took handfuls of the crisp snow and rubbed them upon his forehead. Under this sharp treatment he soon revived a little, and, after several unsuccessful efforts, he succeeded in regaining his feet and resumed his lonely journey. Starting at the least soft of the breeze, the faintest creak of a bending branch, or the fall of a piece of frozen rime from a brow, he slowly trudged along. He had passed the quaint old house at Chagley, the sudden yelp of a chained dog in the courtyard giving him a thrill of horror as he went by, and he had reached the bend in that court part of the road which is opposite the towering wood-covered Kemple End. A keen and cutting blast swept through the black firs that crowned the summit and stood like solemn sentinels upon the declivity. There was a music in the wind, mournful as a croon over the corpse of a beautiful woman whose hair still shimmers with the golden light of life. But Adam heard no melody in the moaning sighs which seemed to fill the air around. To him, whose soul was yet under the influence of the terror through which he had so recently passed, the sounds assumed an awful nature, whilst the firs, standing so clearly defined against the snow, which lay in virgin heaps upon the beds of withered fern, seemed like so many weird skeletons, shaking their bony arms in menace or in a warning. With a suddenness that was more than startling, there was a lull, and the breeze ceased even to whisper. The silence was more painful than were the noises of the blast battling with the branches, for it filled the breast of the solitary wayfarer with forebodings of coming woe. At the point he had reached the road sank, and as Adam stepped into the almost utter darkness caused by the high banks to which clung masses of decayed vegetation, beautified by the genius of winter into white festoons. Again and again the terrible shriek ran out. There was no mistaking the voice of the shrieker for that of anything else upon the earth, and, with a sickly feeling in his heart, Adam slowly emerged from the gloom, and, in expectation of the appearance of the ghastly figure, passed on. He had not to wait long, for as he reached the old bridge spanning the Hodder, once more he saw, in the centre of the road, about midway of the stream, the same terrible object he had followed along the lane from the book at Thornley. With a sensation of terror somewhat less intense than which he had previously influenced him, he had again yielded to the power which impelled him forward, and once more the strange procession commenced, the shrieker gliding over the snow, not, however, without a peculiar shuffling of its feet, surrounded, as they were, by masses of long hair which clung to them and deadened the sound, and Adam followed in his mechanical and involuntary trot. The journey this time, however, was but of short duration, for the poor fellow's cottage was only a little way from the river. The distance was soon traversed, and the shrieker, 
with its face towards the terrified man, took up its position against the door of the dwelling. Adam could not resist the attraction which drew him to the ghastly thing, and as he near it, in a fit of wild desperation, he struck at it, but his hand banged against the oak of the door, and as the spectre splashed away, he fell forward in a swoon. Disturbed by the noise of the fall, the good wife arose and drew him into the cottage, but for some hours he was unable to tell the story of his terrible journey. When he had told of his involuntary trace, chase of the shrieker, a deep gloom fell over the woman's features, for she well knew what the ghastly visit portended to their little household. The dread uncertainty did not continue long, however, for on the third day from that upon which Adam had reached his home, the eldest lad was brought home drowned, and after attending the child's funeral, Adam's wife sickened of a fever, and within a few weeks she too was carried to Mitten Churchyard. These things, together with the dreadful experience of the journey from Chipping, so affected Adam that he lost his reason, and for years afterwards the sound of his pattering footsteps, as in harmless idiocy, with wild eyes and outstretched hands, he trotted along the roads in chase of an imaginary boggart, fell with mournful impressiveness upon the ears of groups gathered by farmhouse fires to listen to stories of the Shrieker. The next stories we will be reading is from the Folklore Journal, Volume 5, Cornish Folklore. The fairies of Cornwall may be divided into four classes, the small people, the pixies, pronounced piskies or the pisgies, the spriggans and the knockers. The first are harmless elfish little beings known all over England, whose revels on a fine summer night have been so described by those favoured individuals who have accidentally had the privilege of seeing them. As a rule, they, however, wish to think themselves invisible, and in the county it is considered unlucky to call them by the name of fairies. The stories told about them by our old folk differed but slightly from those related elsewhere. There was the well-known cow that gave the finest yield of milk, and retained it all year round when others of the herd ran dry, but always ceased the flow at a certain time, and if efforts were made to draw from her, kicked over the milking pail. The milkmaid discovered that the cow belonged to the small people by reason of her wearing in her hat a bunch of flowers having in it four-leafed clover, which rendered them visible, when she saw them climbing up the cow's legs and sucking at her teats. The greedy mistress, when the maid told her of this discovery, contrary to advice, washed the poor animal all over with salt water, which fairies particularly dislike, as well as the smell of fish and grease, in order to drive them away. Of course she succeeded in her object, and by doing so brought nothing but ill luck forever upon herself and her family. When unmolested, fairies bring good fortune to places they frequent, but they are spiteful if interfered with, and delight in vexing and thwarting people who meddle with them. It is well known that they can't abear those whom they can't abide. Then there were the tales of persons spirited away to fairyland to wait upon the small people's children and perform various little domestic offices, 
where the time has passed so pleasantly that they have forgotten all about their homes and relations, until by doing a forbidden thing they have incurred their master's anger. They were then punished by being thrown into a deep sleep, and on awakening found themselves on some moor close to their native villages. These unhappy creatures never after their return settled down to work, but roamed about aimlessly doing nothing, hoping and longing one day to be allowed to go back to the place from whence they had been banished. They had first put themselves into the fairy's power by eating or drinking something on the sly, when they had surprised them at one of their moonlight frolics, or by accepting a gift of fruit from the hands of one of these little beings. There are also two or three legends of curious women who, by underhand dealings, have got hold of mysterious box of green ointment belonging to the fairies, which, rubbed on the eyes, gave them the power of seeing them by daylight, where they look old, withered and grey, and hate to be spied upon by the mortals. These women are always interrupted when they have put the ointment on one eye before they have time to anoint both, and by an inadvertent speech they invariably display their ill-gotten knowledge. They cannot resist making an exclamation when they see a fairy pilfering or up to some mischievous trick. Neither can they keep the secret of the side on which they see, and they are quickly made to pay the penalty of their misdeeds by a well-directed blow from the fairy's fist, which deprives them of the sight of that eye forever. All these old wives' tales are fully related by Mr. Bottrell in his three series of traditions, etc., of West Cornwall. Fairies haunt the ancient monuments of this county, and are supposed to be the beings who bring ill luck on the destroyers of them. Not long ago, a woman of Mooshal, a village near Penzance, told me that troops of small people, not more than a foot and a half high, used on moonlit nights to come out of a hole in the cliff, opening onto the beach. Newell inside of the village, and but a short distance from it. The little people were always dressed very smart, and if anyone came near them, would scamper away into the hole. Mothers often told their children that if they went under cliffs by night, the small people will carry them away into Dicky Danji's hole from Bottrell. These small people are said to have been half-witted people who had committed no mortal sin, but who, when they died, were not good enough to go to heaven. They are always thought, in some state, to have lived before. The small people go about in parties, but Pisky in his habits, at least in West Cornwall, is a solitary little being. I gather, however, from Mr. T. Q. Couch's History of Polpero, that in the eastern part of the county, the name of Pisky is applied indiscriminately to both tribes. He says two only of them are known by name, and quotes the following rhyme. Jack of the Lantern, Joan the Wad, who tickled the maid and made her mad, Light me home, the weather's bad. Here in the West, he is a ragged, merry little fellow. To laugh like a pixie is a common Cornish simile. Interesting himself in human affairs, threshing the farmer's corn at nights, or doing other work, and pinching the main servants when they leave a house dirty at bedtime. Marjorie Dore, in our version of the nursery song, meets with punishment at his hands for her misdoings. See, saw, Marjorie Dore, sold her bed and lay upon straw, 
sold her bed and lay upon hay, and Pisky came and carried her away. For wasn't she a dirty slut? <laughs> to sell her bed and lie in the dirt. Should the happy possessor of one of these industrious, unpaid fairy servants, who never object to taking food left for him by friends, express his thanks aloud, thus showing that he sees him, or try to reward him for his services by giving him a new suit of clothes, he leaves the house never to return, and in the latter case may be heard to say, Pisky fine, Pisky gay, Pisky now will fly away. Or in another version, Pisky new coat and Pisky new hood, Pisky now will do no more good. Mr Cornish, the town clerk of Penzance, mentioned at an antiquarian meeting recently held in that town that there was a brownie still existing in it, that a gentleman whose opinion he would take on many matters had told him that he had often seen it sitting quietly by the fireside. When mischievously inclined, Pisky often leads benighted people a sad dance. Like Will of the Wisp, he takes them over hedges and ditches, and sometimes round and round the same field, from which they in vain try to find their way home, although they can always see the path close at hand, until they sit down and turn their stockings the wrong side out. As an old lady, born in this last century, whom I well knew, once told me she had done. To turn a pocket inside out has the same effect, but to quote the words of a late witty Cornish doctor, Pisky lead is often whiskey lead. Mr. T.Q. Couch in his before mentioned book has two or three amusing stories of their merry pranks. One is called A Voyage with the Piskies. A Paul Perrow lad meeting them one night as he was going on an errand heard them say in chorus, I'm for Portalo Green, a place in the neighbourhood. Repeating the cry after them, quick as thought, he found themselves there, surrounded by a throng of laughing piskies. The next place they visited was Seaton Bench, between Polpero and Plymouth. The third and last cry was, I'm for the King of Francis Cellar. Again, he decided on joining them, dropping the bundle he was carrying on the sands, and immediately found himself in a spacious cellar, engaged with his mysterious companions in tasting the richest wines. Afterwards, they strolled through the palace, where in a room he saw all the preparations made for a feast, and could not resist the temptation of pocketing one of the rich silver goblets from the table. The signal for their return was soon given, and once more he found himself on seated bench, where he had just had time to pick up his bundle before he was whisked home. All these voyages were made in the short space of five minutes. When on his return he told his adventures, they were listened to with incredulity until he produced the goblet, which proved the truth of his tale. After having been kept for generations, this trophy has disappeared. These little creatures seem sometimes, Mr. Couch says, to have delighted in mischief for its own sake. Old Robin Hicks, who formerly lived in a house at Key Head, in Polpero, has more than once on stormy winter nights been alarmed at his supper by a voice sharp and shrill. Robin, Robin, your boat is adrift. Loud was the laughter and the tacking of hands, clapping, when they succeeded in luring Robin as far as the quay, where the boat was lying safely in its moorings.
This story is called The Fairy Funeral. This and two or three other bits of folklore were communicated to the Athenism by me when Ambrose Merton, Mr. Thorns, solicited such contributions. The parish church of Leyland is curiously situated amongst hills of blown sand near the entrance of the Creek of Hale. The sandy waste around the church is called the Towen, and this place was long the scene of midnight gambols of the small people. In the adjoining village, or as it is called in Cornwall, the church town, lived an old woman who had been, according to her own statement, a frequent witness to the use made by the fairies of the Towen. Her husband also had seen some extraordinary scenes on the same spot. From her, to me, oft-repeated description, I get the following tale. It was the fishing season, and Richard had been to St Ives for some fish. He was returning, laden with pilchards, on a beautiful moonlight night, and as he ascended the hills from St Ives, he thought he heard the bell of Leland Church tolling. Upon a nearer approach he saw lights in the church, and most distinctly did the bell toll, not with its usual clear sound, but dull and heavy as if it had been muffled, scarcely awakening any echo. Richard walked towards the church, and cautiously, but not without fear, approaching one of the windows, looked in. At first he could not perceive anyone within, nor discover whence the light came by, which everything was so distinctly illuminated. At length he saw, moving along the centre aisle, a funeral procession. The little people who crowded the aisle, although they all looked very sorrowful, were not dressed in any mourning garments, so far from it, they wore wreaths of little roses and carried branches of the blossoming myrtle. Richard beheld the bier borne between six whether men or women he could not tell, but he saw that the face of the corpse was that of a beautiful female, smaller than the smallest child's doll. It was, Richard said, as if it were a dead seraph, so lovely did it appear to him. The body was covered with white flowers, and its hair, like gold little threads, was tangled among the blossoms. The body was placed within the altar, and then a large party of men with picks and spades began to dig a little hole close by the sacramental table. Their task being completed, others, with great care, removed the body and placed it in the hole. The entire company crowded around, eager to catch a parting glimpse of that beautiful corpse, ere yet it was placed in the earth. As it was lowered into the ground, they began to tear off their flowers and break their branches of myrtle, crying, Our queen is dead! Our queen is dead! At length, one of the men who had dug the grave threw a shovelful of earth upon the body, and the shriek of the fairy host so alarmed Richard that he involuntarily joined in on it. In a moment, all the lights were extinguished, and the fairies were heard flying in great consternation in every direction. Many of them brushed past the terrified man, and, shrieking, pierced him with sharp instruments. He was compelled to save his life by the most rapid flight. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Secret Commonwealth. This will be a weekly podcast, so if you enjoyed what you heard, please consider subscribing and leaving a five-star review. Be sure to tune in next week for more tales of the Fey Folk. Thank you again, and good night.